0: Uh, This morning, uh, we're going to be looking at John chapter 2. John chapter 2, looking at verses uh, 13 through 22. And uh, if you uh, have one of those Pew Bibles, there's about three per row there. Uh, That's on page 834. If you don't own a Bible, you can uh, take that Bible as a gift from us. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. This morning, It's been our joy to be studying the Gospel of John uh, together in our Sunday morning worship hour. We were reminded last week that John is giving us a view of the life and ministry of Jesus, especially through the signs of Jesus which are given to us in order that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we saw last week this miraculous sign, the first miraculous sign of Jesus turning water into wine. And though what we look at this week is not a miraculous sign, uh, what Jesus said, point, what he says in this passage points to the ultimate miraculous sign. That is, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and it points to his resurrection. But it does so in such a way that reminds us not only of his ultimate reason for coming, but also our ultimate reason for existence, which is worship. Worship is not just the time of gathering on Sunday morning. That is corporate worship. We do gather together for this time to worship corporately. But worship is, as Romans 12 says, and we'll reference that a bit this morning, all of life. And so we think about worshiping the Lord God, the triune God, ultimately is the purpose of our life. Well, if you're able to, would you please stand with me as I read the scriptures aloud this morning that we're going to be studying together. If you're able to. And uh, follow along as I read this passage this morning. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You may be seated. This is the word of God in the New Testament reading. May it be a blessing to you as you've heard it read both in the Old and New Testament this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, this morning we are grateful to be able to open your word and to know that, uh, Lord, what we have represented to us in our own language is um, that which was approximated to the original autographs inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, preserved for us in many thousands of manuscripts and now translated into a language that we can read and understand. Lord, we are so grateful for that. We pray by your Holy Spirit who did inspire Uh, the words of the original autographs that today he would also illuminate our eyes and our hearts to an understanding of these things. Lord, this morning I want to pause just for a moment and pray for the family of Brianna Kelly and those who were affected by the shooting last night in the Vinton Highlands neighborhood here in Peoria. We do pray for her family, Lord, as they lost their 29-year-old daughter um, and friend. Lord, we remember that you are the resurrection and the life this morning. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be proclaiming that good news to others. But now, Lord, as we open your word, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be attentive and that we would apply these truths in Jesus' name. Amen. Temples or, um, <clears throat> excuse me, buildings of worship have been important symbols in the religious practice of many throughout the world for millennia. As one resource states the hindu mandir is a temple that incorporates all elements of hindu cosmos presenting the good the evil and the human as well as the elements of hindu sense of cyclic time and the essence of life that's one representation of a religious temple uh, still around after thousands of years in our day The mosques of Islam, the same resource says, generally serve as a location for prayer, for Ramadan vigils, for funeral services, for Sufi ceremonies, marriages, and business agreements, alms, collections, and distribution, as well as homeless shelters. Somewhere inside of these mosques is a symbol that points towards Mecca for regular prayer. Uh, Another type of temple is the mosque. A a third type of temple is a gurdwara. Uh, It's a place of gathering and worship for Sikhs. Usually there's a large room that is divided for men and women, and inside there is an elevated place for the Guru Granth Sahib, which is the final word of the final Sikh guru, as they say it. Uh, Gurdwara literally means door to the guru. So if you were to walk into a gurdwara... You would take your shoes off, you would go and sit down, men and women separated, and you would see this book elevated in the midst of uh, their worship space. I've been in all three kinds of these temples, and some of you have heard before uh, the interesting experiences I've had uh, while inside of these temples. It's interesting to note that these major world religions, among others, find the place of worship to be so significant In fact, many of those places of worship you would find not just gathered on their worship day, but throughout the week as well. Much of their community activity happens there, much like what we do when we gather in a church building. The same can be said of Israel and their worship of Yahweh God, though in Yahweh God's providence and in His plan, there is a direct revelation to Israel about the construction first of the tabernacle, and then eventually the temple. And so uh, what we can maintain as those who believe that the Bible is authoritative and the Word of God is that those constructions of ta- of the tabernacle and then of the temple are the only God-revealed uh, uh, constructions that um, we know of, and, and we should believe that. Uh, and for Israel, there's a great sense of God's presence with Uh, both the tabernacle and the temple. Um, As Israel is fleeing Egypt on their way to the promised land, they are aware of God's presence in a few ways. Um, A pillar of smoke uh, by day and a pillar of fire by night certainly represents God's presence with them. But nothing is as significant as the tabernacle in their wilderness wanderings. Without getting into all of the intricate pieces of the tabernacle, when Israel woke up in the morning and looked out of their, their door, they would... Uh, see central to their camp the tabernacle and inside its walls the holiest place where the presence of God dwelled. They would be reminded by this presence and they, then specifically the Passover once a year that God had delivered them from Egypt and was leading them to a promised land. And so though Israel would, ha- would have had a concept of God being everywhere present, omnipresent, they would also have an idea as they looked out their their tent window, if you will, in the morning to see that tabernacle, they would say, that is where God's presence lives, in the midst of our camp. In fact, the author of Hebrews makes mention of these things as shadows and copies of heavenly realities shown to Moses. And then talks of the telos, the end of these shadows and copies, finding their reality in the Lord Jesus Christ. In short, the author of Hebrews states that, uh, "...for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world." But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Those types and shadows of the Old Testament tabernacle and those sacrifices that were done there yearly. And then, of course, once the temple was constructed are not an end in themselves. They are pointing to a reality. They are shadows and types pointing to the reality of the final and full sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, notice it says in Hebrews there, brings us into the presence of God. His mediatorial work as God dwelling with us. Emmanuel, we're about to think of that once again during Advent season. God dwelling with us, His presence literally with us. On earth, during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, but for the sake of reconciling us to the presence of God, restoring that which was lost in the garden. You know, some theologians, and I tend to agree with this, see the garden as a sort of temple-like area where there is worship of God face-to-face. Adam and Eve would have experienced this kind of worship. Uh, Adam sort of being the, uh, the priest who ushered this worship for his wife and, and, and then to their progeny later on by obeying God and saying, look, our God has provided everything we have needed. Isn't our God great? And oh, by the way, we get to walk with Him in His presence day after day. But the fall dismantled this. And so what we have in the meantime... Until the appearance of Jesus, really, even though the temple would have been grand, are just cobbled together realities of what God intended. That comes to fruition, at least in an inaugural sense, when Jesus steps foot on earth. And we're going to see this morning, this explode on the scene for us, as Christ says these words we have just read, that would have absolutely blown the minds of those listening, and it does, and they don't understand it. Nor do I think we would have caught everything had we been listening in on that day. But as those who are recipients of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in so many ways, not the least of which through his life, death, and resurrection, but also through the revealed word, we understand exactly what he meant by the restoration of the temple. In fact, we're going to look at two restored temples today, and really, we could probably add a third as well, as we think about our own resurrection as those who are considered the temple of God, as Paul says in his uh, book to uh, his letter to the Corinthians. But at least this morning, let us focus on these two restored temples. The main point this morning is this. You can see this written on the back of your worship folder. The focus of worship is on the triune God and who he is and what he has done. The focus of worship is on the triune God and who he is and what he has done. And this is particularly seen today in what Christ declares about the temple in his day and what he said concerning the temple of his body. So I want us to see this morning three stages of Jesus' declaration concerning his ultimate miraculous sign. We see this temple language unfolded to this trajectory of his resurrection. First, we see the setting described in verse 13 of John chapter 2. John chapter 2 and verse 13, look at it with me again. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover of the Jews. Uh, First, let's recognize from last week that Jesus had not gathered a large group of followers uh, from verse Twelve. Look, look back at verse 12. After this, after he had done this miraculous sign, after he had turned the, the water into wine, uh, it was very incognito. Only his disciples, his mother, and the servants who filled the water pots knew that this was happening. After this, he went down to Capernaum with a whole bunch of followers. Is that what it says? No. With his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there. For a few days. Jesus has not amassed some great following at this point, but he has done miraculous signs already. But then he does not stay away after he goes back to Capernaum. You see, his hour had not yet come, though he did do what was helpful in the situation at the wedding. His hour had still not come. And so we begin to see this unfolding, this self-revelation of who Jesus truly is to those who are around him, specifically first to Israel, then to um, the Greeks and beyond. But here he is perfectly obedient. He is a perfectly obedient Jew and goes to the Passover feast in Jerusalem. This was quite a journey from the north of the Sea of Galilee all the way south to Jerusalem, it's about 100 miles, which would have taken a few days by foot. This was, of course, the way they traveled, so they were likely very fit and ready for these kinds of trips. And certainly because this was where you went for the Passover feast, uh, they had prepared well to take this trip. doesn't mean there weren't stops along the way. I certainly hope so. It probably took them a few days to get there. But what is the significance of Passover to the Jewish people? Well, Passover is all about the deliverance from bondage to the Egyptians to a place where they can worship. We think about uh, what happens there with Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh. Um, They go to Pharaoh and say, you know, God says, Yahweh God says, let my people go so they can go and worship out And the wilderness. And Pharaoh denies this. And we're, if you're familiar with the Bible, we're familiar with the sequence here. Ultimately, to the point where these plagues come because Pharaoh continues to resist God. His heart is hardened both by his own heart and by by who God is. And ultimately, what happens is that the firstborn of anyone who did not put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and above, that firstborn would be slaughtered. And Israel, being obedient, did that. And in the night, they sweep away into the wilderness. Not to be outdone by Yahweh God, Pharaoh continues to chase them to his demise. But this Passover feast that is established is to reflect back upon that deliverance. And even as we say in our opening, they worshipped God along the way but they were looking for the ultimate place of worship. They were looking for that final resting place in the promised land. So this feast looks back and looks forward, back to the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, forward to the land in which they wanted to occupy, but now they are occupied by Rome. So therefore they are now looking forward to the coming of Messiah to deliver them from this occupation of Rome, this enslavement to Rome. Just as today, when we celebrate the Lord's table, which is a revision of the Passover feast, we look back to the full and finished work of Christ and forward to the consummated kingdom. The focus of worship is on the triune God, who He is and what He has done. Here the Passover looks back to what God had done and looks forward forward to what Christ will do. And Jesus walks into this scene, this Passover scene, that is happening in Jerusalem. And he finds that things are not in order concerning the worship of Yahweh God. He finds that even though they're going through the motions, going through the paces, he finds that this true worship has been disrupted. What they should have been doing was not Properly being done. Therefore, we see, secondly, the sin exposed. The sin exposed. We see the setting that is given to us. It's the Passover. But what does Jesus find in verses 14 through 17? Look at verse 14. In the temple, Jesus, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers. Jesus enters into the temple and finds that instead of the prescribed Old Testament religious worship that was supposed to be going on, there were rather those who were selling and trading and doing all sorts of business. The selling of animals was likely for sacrifices. It, it was that. The Old Testament was, uh, uh, example was that those who were bringing sacrifices to the temple were supposed to bring from their own flocks, as is seen in Exodus and Leviticus. It's sometimes supposed that because people traveled far to come to Jerusalem... I mean, think about even traveling from Capernaum to Jerusalem... and you brought your own sacrifice with you. That sacrifice had to be from your own flock... and it had to be considered by the priest as without blemish. So it's supposed that for convenience sake, you wouldn't want to do that. You'd want to maybe buy a sacrifice when you got there. Because what if you got there and the best lamb or sheep that you had did not fit the description of the Old Testament. And the priest said, no, we, we have to uh, reject that. So there's a matter of convenience. People traveled far to come. They may not be able to bring their own. They needed some way to, uh, to bring sacrifice to the temple. And while this does not seem forbidden in the Old Testament code, it certainly is not the prescribed way. Some also say that it was implied here that the money changers are cheating the people, uh, upcharging um, uh, them as they exchange their money for the common currency. Or that these ones that were selling sheeps and goats and pigeons were uh, upselling and saying, look, your sacrifice is not good enough, therefore you need to buy mine and, and uh, I will dispose of yours for you. And some suppose that they would just recycle those sacrifices then. Kossenberger maintains the larger reason for Jesus' righteous anger is that this would have been taking the place this would have been taking place in the Gentile court, not the inner temple, so the Gentiles' worship is being disrupted. If this is true, then it points even more to the greater sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes to save his people, not just Jews, but Gentiles from their sins. And, and kind of regardless of Whatever we surmise the main issue to be, it is the main issue that Jesus makes in point here that ought to concern us, which is that worship is not being done properly. Jesus' response, both physically and verbally, helps us surmise the main issue. Look at what it says again. "'Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables.'" And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus takes cords, ties them together, and at least begins to whip these cords in such a way as to say, get out. He overturns the tables and pours out the coins. The only ones left are the pigeon salesmen. And then he states to them, get these things out of here. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. This speaks to the heart of the issue. Whether or not we know the full motivation of the salesman or not, the point is the temple is a place of worship and not sales. Even the outer court, that was for the Gentiles. Let me just make a side note here real quickly. Some want to argue, therefore, we should not allow anyone to sell anything on Sunday morning or anything like that. I don't have an issue with selling things in the church building as long as we're not selling them during the worship service or selling them as an aid to worship. If kids are doing fundraisers, we're not going to stand up in front here and say, hey, by the way, so-and-so is doing a fundraiser. Books being sold at cost as a resource, as Marty Zide does when he comes out in the lobby. The problem becomes when we're starting to do things like sell Jesus junk. You know, selling a cross to rub with your hand during worship. Something along those lines. Or uh, thinking about something like the Roman Catholic indulgences being sold to help people out of purgatory and these kinds of things. No, we should have nothing that interrupts our worship. That is the point. When we gather, when we pull together into a place like this, and yes, it is, it is simply a building, but when we gather together, we are the body of Christ and we are worshiping Him together. So those things should not be happening while we are gathered for worship. We should have our focus, our attention upon the Lord Jesus Christ, upon God the Father, upon the Holy Spirit, asking for them to aid us in our worship of them because that is what is right and that is what is ultimate. And Jesus walks into the temple and he sees this going on. And in a righteous anger, he drives out the filth from worship. This brings to mind for the disciples an Old Testament passage from Psalm 69, which we heard read this morning. Look at it again. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The significance of this in the minds of the disciples, and as we think of what Psalm 69 says today, is the messianic overtones of this psalm. Listen again to the few verses before verse 9. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts, Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. That is messianic, dear ones. That indeed predicts what's going to happen in the life of Jesus. He's going to be rejected by his own people. Even his brothers think that he's crazy. He's going to be rejected as the one who is truly Messiah, truly the Son of God. And the reproach that falls because of the name of God has fallen on him. What is the reality here? The reality is of what Jesus finds here is a twisted and manipulated and upside down Jewish worship. They were not following the prescribed way of worshiping Yahweh God. Even if they were doing so to the letter of the law in regard to everything else they were doing, they did not have a contrite and broken spirit before the Lord, which is the only sacrifice that he accepts. And so let me give you the good news this morning. The only full and final sacrifice that is humble and true is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the only full and final sacrifice that, Jesus, that God accepts is from the Lord Jesus Christ. His perfect life, His death and resurrection. Therefore, we stand right before God, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ has fully and finally Done. He is the final Paschal, final Passover lamb that we needed. What will Jesus endure? He will endure the reproach of the people who say that they love Yahweh God. And he challenges them and says, if you do not love me, you have not loved Yahweh God. I am, he says, I am Yahweh. What does he begin to endure here? The reproach for telling the truth about Yahweh, about himself as the Son of God, the truth about true worship of the triune God. You see, the focus of worship is on the triune God and who he is and what he has done. And Jesus is here pointing to what God has done and what God will do as we see in our final point, the sign provided, the sign provided provided. Because Jesus has done this, the Jews demand a sign of authority. Now remember, many times in the Gospel of John, when we see that phrase, the Jews, like that, it is referring to the religious leaders, um, probably mainly those that were concerned about um, the law of God being not only followed to the letter of the law, but expanding that in order to, as they would say, protect the law of God, most likely the Pharisees. And so they see him do this. And they are incensed. Who are you to come in here and do this? By this, by the way, we see the first temple restored, don't we? What is Jesus seeking to do? He's seeking to restore worship to what it ought to be. Who are you to come in here and tell us how to do things? What's your name again? Where are you from? What sign do you give us that you can do these things? That's what they say in verse 18. What sign? The sign that Jesus gives is veiled in mystery from this side of the cross, but clearly indicates the death and resurrection that he would accomplish. In retrospect, John is able to write and tell us that Jesus is speaking of the temple of his body. Look at it again. Verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. In retrospect, again, John is able to write and tell us this. The location of worship is anticipated to change according to what Jesus says here. The location of worship is anticipated to change. This is progressively seen in the following chapters as well, especially when Jesus converses with the woman at the well. We'll see this um, sometime in January probably, uh, about this idea that where is it that we're to worship? The Jews say it's here. The, The Samaritans say it's here. Jesus said, the Jews are right, worship happens in Jerusalem, but there is a time coming that is now here where God will have worshipers that worship him in spirit and in truth. The location of worship is changing. His disciples remembered these things after he was raised from the dead. They remembered that the scriptures, the Old Testament, and the words that Jesus had spoken. They were able to piece together from the only scriptures they had access to and from what Jesus had said that the relocation of worship went from a place of sacrifice day after day to a full and final sacrifice in him, and that the temple of his body was raised, and what comes to be known as the body of Christ? The church. Not the building, but the individuals who make up that body both universally and locally. Now let's think about this in a biblical theological manner, looking at the whole arc of Scripture If we can say, and I think we can say rightly, that the garden was a place of worship. That was taken away at the fall. Something is cobbled together in the sense of a tabernacle. I don't mean that to be disrespectful. It is very precise. But it is certainly not like the original place where man was worshiping. Even the opulence of the temple cannot compare with what Jesus says here. There is no fullness of sacrifice even at the temple, even though it was... Amazing, even as the disciples walk out from it and they say, Jesus, look at the the magnificence of this temple. And what does he say? There's going to come a time where this thing is going to be torn down and one stone will not be left upon another. But don't worry because the temple of my body will be destroyed and three days later I will raise it up. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the final temple. Sacrifice, is he not? Therefore, he is through whom we worship in the Lord. And it says here, they believed. They believed. It's the second time that it says that they believed. Look at it again. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Previously, in verse 11, this was the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And they believed. These signs are given so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And the ultimate sign is the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection. The focus of worship is on the triune God, who he is and what he has done. And all of this comes spilling out, explodes on the scene as Jesus claims that his body is the temple that will be destroyed and raised up three days later. Have you believed? Have you trusted and the perfect life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only means by which you can be reconciled to God, as the only means by which you can truly worship God? Maybe you're here this morning and all you do is just go through the religious cycles. You know the right things to say. You know the, the Bible events really well from Scripture. You were raised in the church, but you have never truly turned from your sin and trusted in Christ's final work to be made right with God. If you have not recognized him as the full and final temple whose body was destroyed and raised up three days later, please, I plead with you this morning, repent, turn from your sins, trust in Christ alone. I'm going to ask at the end of our time, which is still a few minutes, that Pastor Mike would be up here to talk with you. If you have trusted Christ, how is the worship of your life? Remember, worship is more than just gathering on a Sunday morning. It certainly includes that, and we want to celebrate that, and we want to do that right and well. By the way, I hold to the regulative principle of worship. That means that we worship as God has prescribed in the Scriptures and nothing else. We ought to be really precise about that. But what about the way you live your life? Are you living your life as one whose temple has been cleansed? The Bible says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. There's a a third temple that is restored, right? There's the restoration of the temple when Jesus walks in and cleanses it. By the way, he does it another time right before his crucifixion. There's the restoration concerning his body as the temple that needs to be restored. Then there are those of us who are in Christ who have our temples restored. Your body, your life as a part of the body of Christ is to reflect one who has had the idolatry driven out of it. You are accepted in God by virtue of Christ's finished work, but this produces a life of fruitfulness. Are you loving and worshiping God with your life, or are you in the end just simply worshiping yourself? If you recognize the need to confess this sin and get help, please come and see us. We desire to walk with you through that to help point you to what it means to continue to confess your sin and live rightly for god sacrificially for god as a part of the life of the church we are to be coming alongside of each other and encouraging each other even if that comes in the form of a loving rebuke are you one who is investing in the life of the local assembly? I don't mean that generally in the sense of ministries, though that needs to happen too. Even as you minister in ministries, but even outside of that, are you, are you plugging into the life of your fellow church member? This is a part of being a living sacrifice. As Paul states in Romans 12, verse 1, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do you know what Paul goes on to talk about in the rest of the chapter? After he's done talking about us being living sacrifices and not being conformed to this world, in the rest of the chapter, he says this, Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. But lovingly serve the body of Christ, especially as you consider doing so in the local assembly. Your sacrifice of praise that you bring to the Lord in your life spills over into the life of others. Worship is to the triune God, and it is in all of life, and it is a response for what he has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come now to our time of a closing song, we pray that if there are those in our midst who do not know you, that today would be the day that as they hear the word preached, the gospel preached, that your Holy Spirit would remove their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, that they would Come to realize their need of Christ, that they would repent, they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone. And for those of us who know you, Lord, that we would live in such a way as that we are those who have, through the Lord Jesus Christ, our temples cleansed, and that we are to be living sacrifices, Lord, that we are giving up our own desires that are not in line with your desires. And that we would submit to you, Lord, knowing that you have in mind what is best for us. You say you come to give us life more abundantly. And as if we, if we obey you, that we find, Lord, that abundance of life because of what Christ has secured for us. And then, Lord, that we would remember as we are living sacrifices that we're to be involved in each other's lives, pointing each other to you to live in such a way. And so may those who are struggling come and seek out the help that they need to do so and may we be willing not just as uh, the pastors of this church but all members of this church to sacrificially give in that way as well lord we thank you we thank you that there is coming a day where we will be in your presence once again unlike lord what we have now which is so great the presence of the holy spirit in our life lord we will see you face to face and oh how we long for that day